Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that samples and savours the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including the Audi e-tron and the MG HS. We also have three interviews from the sublime to the ridiculous, well at least the quirky. Liz Ampt tells us the benefits of surveys to determine why people are travelling, not just how they are making their trips. Stuart Sharp, historian, has some wonderful reflections on transport and the animosity in our early history between politicians and the Queen's representatives. And Brian Smith gives his take on just another wild scheme to transport people in cities. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get the program going with the news. The Audi e-tron electric vehicle is a large SUV. For example, it's two category sizes above an electric Hyundai Kona. It has a big battery and a lot of power in order to push considerable weight. It comes in two variants with impressive power figures, the 50 with 230 kilowatts and the 55 with 265 kilowatts. There's a traditional SUV and a sportsback with a sloping fastback rear roof line. Every model has all-wheel drive. It has a five-star safety rating with features including 360-degree cameras, lane departure warning, rear cross-traffic assist, intersection assist, collision avoidance assist, turn assist. The interior has the plush feel and digital technology you would expect from an Audi. Because of its size, we only saw a maximum range reading of 262 kilometres in the 50 Sportsback model we drove priced, excluding on-road costs, from $137,000 to $159,000. MG's medium-sized SUV, the HS, is not dominating its segment as much as its small SUV brother, the ZS. It's currently in ninth place, having to compete with well-known vehicles such as the Toyota RAV4. But with a low price and plenty of features, its sales are surging, three times higher so far this year. It has a five-star safety rating, measured in 2019, and many of the modern safety features. A bright, if somewhat quirky, infotainment screen and dash. The MG has a 1.5-litre turbocharged engine and a dual-clutch seven-speed gearbox. The RAV4 has a less desirable CVT. We drove the two-wheel drive, second from the top Excite version, priced at just under $35,000 drive away. A few things could be refined a bit, but its pitch is clearly value for money. A new company called Bell Resources, not related to the company that was associated with Alan Bond, has bought up 70 car wash sites and three other greenfield sites around Australia to transform them into ultra-fast electric vehicle charging stations. Each site will have solar panels and a battery, with ultra-fast charges ranging from 175 to 350 kilowatts. Bell Resources is developing opportunities in Australia and the United States in energy supply and resources to electric vehicles, including ride-share markets. The car washers will all be branded Bell Hub and resemble petrol stations 
with barista coffee facilities and signboards showing the current charge cost rate. Bell Resources Chief Executive Mark Avery is reported to have said that they will be very competitive in charging prices based on solar power and battery storage that can be charged at off-peak rates. If you've ever doubted that some premium brands are often about fashion rather than on-road performance, then note that Ferrari have just held their first fashion show of their clothes collection. We are reliably informed that the collection classifies as being unisex and created by Armani designer Rocco Iannone. They set up the catwalk runway in the assembly area for the V12 sports cars, such as the new 812 Competizione. The partly finished cars seem symbolic, as some of the fashion pieces were substantial coats then finished as a miniskirt, leaving bare legs. Other fashion styles were the occasional walking billboard, proudly displaying the Ferrari name, the kaleidoscope of colours, and jackets that cost a lot, in the hope people will notice that the image you want to portray is of a person who doesn't care what other people think. And that has been the news. Liz Ampt is an international expert in transport surveys, particularly those surveys that look at the whole of journey, but also assess what were the circumstances behind the decision-making. We often assume that people who drive to work are doing that as a one-off exercise, yet there's so many other factors involved in why they made that decision to use a car. It's to do with the availability, it's to do with what other people in a household might need. Liz is also an expert in behavioural change. I caught up with her recently and asked about what we needed to understand about people and their decision-making in order to be able to plan properly into the future. In most surveys, they're measuring people as they're finally doing their trip. How important is it to understand why they're and what opportunities they've had to do their trip in the first place? Absolutely vital. If you just look at patterns of people's trips you have no idea why they're doing it and therefore you can't use any of that data really for planning I was just the other day I was talking to a colleague of mine in Chile and he was talking about looking at some data where he found a mother and father were both going to this very odd place about 10 kilometers out of the city they were measuring the data in and It turned out that the reason was because they were trying to minimise their car use and they were dropping a child off at the mother-in-law's place. One person would drop it off there and the next person would pick it up, pick the child up. So when he just looked at the data before, he had understood that it looked completely crazy. And there are many such instances where planners and decision makers simply cannot work if they don't understand why people are doing the trips that they're seeing in their surveys. We think that everyone does a logical decision based on time, distance and cost. It's more complex than that? It certainly is. I will personally argue that we all do things according to what I term a subjective logic. So it makes sense for me to do what I'm doing because I really hate driving down the main street of Handorf uh, and the, the... traffic on the weekend drives me so mad that I take a much longer route 
which therefore costs me more, which doesn't make any sense from an economist's point of view because I'm costing myself more and taking myself more time. In Wellington, in New Zealand, there are two ways to get to the airport uh, from the centre of the city and lots of people take the longer one, which is by the ocean because, you know, they have a lovely... Well, it's by the harbour anyway. And so they have a lovely view of Wellington as they're leaving to fly on their holiday. So it's very common to do that sort of thing. The survey that was done in Fiji, you had to consider some extra modes of transport that you hadn't planned for? (laughs) Yes, we did. We had to consider... um, a horseback, for example, was one of the things that was, it wasn't common, but it was certainly a way of getting around. And something else we certainly hadn't thought of was swimming. So some people actually swam from one uh, of their villages to the other village, which was the most efficient way of getting there. Um, the other thing, another mode of transport that was used much more commonly than those two that I just happened to think of was um, hitchhiking. It's very common to hitchhike with truck drivers because, by the way, walking is by far the dominant mode when you take the country of Fiji as a whole. So um, the hitchhiking, we decided, needed to be a separate mode if you were looking at how people were getting from, particularly from villages into um, bigger cities. Quite often we haven't counted the walking trips, have we? No. Whereas really it, it accounts for many things. The other thing that happened out of Fiji, what was it like understanding how much people didn't travel? Is that an important part as well? Well, yes, actually that mystified us quite a lot, this idea that people didn't travel. And so we did several pilot surveys to see if our survey method was somehow missing trips. And step one, it was missing trips. Because if you live in a village, many people thought that just going to your auntie's place to get some sugar or something to continue your baking, they thought, well, that's not really a trip, obviously, they thought. But actually, from our point of view, it was moving in space for a particular purpose to obtain sugar, if you take my example. So we found we needed to modify our survey method, so that was a step one. But then we discovered that people, in fact, did not leave their homes, which were often um, multi-family, um, there were many family, well, not many, but several families in one home. So just to even to socialise, it was unnecessary in many cases to not leave the home. So there were, there were many cases where trip rate, as we would call it, was much lower than usual, Some of it we were able to improve because of our pilot testing and some of it was just because they have different ways of living. The point about not considering it a trip in many ways is a symbolism of how often we do consider transport, isn't it? That we really only think that journey to work is the thing to do, yet we are missing and misunderstanding the broader nature and the volume of other reasons people travel. Exactly. Um, Quite often ministries of transport think that the journey to work is the determinant of all road building, cycle path building, footpath building. But in many cases, the journey to work is not the time of major traffic on a road. And I take traffic in the broader sense, but walking, cycling, driving... I'm sure that you in Sydney can think of examples where 
congestion on the weekend is even greater than congestion on parts of the network. Uh, congestion on the weekend is greater than in the what we call the AM the morning peak. Yeah, and it's an example then that we have over stereotyped the transport demand. It certainly is, and and in, in fact, if you think about transport modelling, when people are trying to predict what's going to happen in the future, quite often they only collect data from Monday to Friday. I see examples all the time where clients are saying, oh, look, let's just collect data from Monday to Friday. And then they do all of their planning on Monday to Friday. And if you come to think of it, they might need to do their planning based on some Saturdays, some Sundays, some events. So it's really uh, missing a lot of data by not uh, not understanding the full picture. So data science is as critical now, if not more, than it's ever been? Yes, it certainly is, because what it seems to us, even as survey designers, it seems as if we've got many more sources of data. How lucky are we? But actually, we need to understand the science, as you point out, or otherwise we've just got what I call rubbish data. It, you know, data is, is, a fa- is what you observed, that's data, but if it's not able to be interpreted properly, then it's not useful at all. So the science is certainly more important than it's ever been. I appreciate your time, Liz. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. This is Overdrive across Australia. Toyota Kluger has been a huge success in Australia for the brand. Now in 2021, the all-new Kluger has arrived. It has a new style, improved safety features, enhanced driving dynamics and a new hybrid powertrain. The all-new model is available in three trim levels, GX, GXL and Grande. In petrol two-wheel drive guys or hybrid or petrol all-wheel drive configuration. The petrol-electric hybrid solves a problem that has always been an issue with the Kluger, the fuel consumption. Hybrid economy is around 5.6 litres per 100 k's. The top-of-the-range Kluger Grande has a panoramic moonroof, hands-free opening for the power tailgate, ventilation for the front seats, heads-up display, a panoramic view monitor, leather-accented seats and a premium 11-speaker audio system. Pricing starts from just around $47,500 for the GX two-wheel drive petrol, through to $75,500 for the Grande all-wheel drive hybrid, plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Stuart Sharp is a railway historian. We went for a bit of a trip down to the Southern Highlands, about an hour to the southwest of Sydney, to have a look at some of the stations there. When we got to Moss Vale, we went to a building that was the second house built for the station master of the Moss Vale Railway Station. It's now a business, and we asked the people if we could go out the back, and we used a generic expression of to have a look at the rear of the building. Stuart, why did we not ask a more specific question? Because I wanted to show you the beautiful bubble-free concrete panels in, in the dunny, uh, the lovely composition of, of fibro roof and terracotta tiles outside dunnies. And a lot of people wouldn't know what an outside dunny is now. We asked the lady in the office to just go and have a look at the back of the building, otherwise we might have looked a bit weird. Yeah, well, she would have got suspicious, yeah. 
While we were out the back, the owner of the business turned up, and as soon as he saw us, he said, ''Ah, you must be railway fanatics.'' I'm not sure if that's because of the way we dressed or merely the location we were at and looking at the old toilet shed. Stuart, you were part of the reason why he may have recognised us? Well, he said he thought I was there a couple of years ago. When I looked up my records, it was seven years ago. So he's got a good memory. Now, the building is solid concrete, isn't it? It's precast concrete units. But that would make it particularly cold. Cold and hot. You know, it doesn't move temperature one way or the other. Freezing in winter, boiling in summer. Why did they build the second one? Because the first one appeared to be very elegant. Usually because the incumbent may have seven children. And that original one was very small originally. It, you see it now with all these extensions on it. I would think that that would be the issue that the new station master in 1919 needed a bigger house. And that suited them because we had, New South Wales Railways had stolen the idea of precast concrete panel construction from the Queensland Railway. But we didn't really know what to use it for. So it was an opportunity to experiment to see how it went as a house. So was the experiment a success? Did the railways continue on with concrete houses for their staff? The railways quickly realised that concrete was a product that should not be seen in an urban area and restricted its use to about 30 houses in rural branch lines. Why did Musvale become the centre for workshops for the railways? Well, it wasn't any workshop, but it became a big point where they took off um, uh, and put on additional locomotives all the time because it, it's uh, the top of the grade uh, from Goulburn. And so assistant locomotives were put on at Goulburn to Mossvale and taken off at Mossvale. Now, um, uh, so, and having uh, done that, they needed the facilities. But the other thing that happened when they got to the top of the grade at Mossvale, they could increase the load of trains because basically it was downhill from Mossvale to Sydney. So you needed extensive yards to store halves of trains, you know, lengths of um, railway vehicles, so that you would um, add tonnage to the train. Talking a bit further afield and why railway developments happened in certain areas, what happened at Thoreau? During World War I, William Holman was the Premier. Now, he was a member for Cootamundra, but he had a holiday house at Thoreau, and he decided to look after the people at Thoreau where he had his holiday house by indicating that was to be the location of a new locomotive depot. Now, the depot was required because the railways uh, between 1910 and 1920 eased the gradients between the coast and waterfall. And at that stage, the depot was at waterfall. So they wanted to relocate the depot from the top of the grade to the bottom of the grade. And Holman says, I know the spot. Now, the railways would have chosen Wollongong um, um, that was their choice but the Premier says no you're going to put it where my holiday house is and of course with all the smoke and shit and all that sort of thing that goes with it and 
all the pretty socio low socioeconomic employees that drive all the tourists away from Thoreau and send them to the other centres, um, other seaside centres, like Austinmere. Yeah, and others. But but definitely Thoreau then never had a part of the big seaside tourist trade because it was a smelly, dirty place. We also went to Burradu, a little railway station near Bowral. Why was that station built many years ago? Burradu was put in for the Anthony Hordens family, which had their house uh, not far from the station. So is the placement of railway stations, particularly in the regional areas, very much to do with who you know? On one or two things, influential people or railway requirements. Now, Mossvale is a case, there was a need for railway requirements. See, not only did you have to take locomotives off and service them, return them to Golden, not only did you have to have a marshalling yard, you then had to build a barracks for men who were, time was up on their shift, so, and then it starts to grow. So then you get people appointed, you get shunters and, and a whole tribe of cleaners then come to live in the place. But Mossvale, it's another case of Mossvale and Barrel, the good place, the bad place. Thrill, Austinmere, the good place, the bad place. And the bad place was all related to railway activity. When we were at the Mossvale station, there was this lovely, elegant door which looked as though it hadn't been used for quite some time. What's the historical significance of that? Well, that was the, the door that was inserted for uh, colonial governors. In the 1880s, the uh, New South Wales government bit the bullet and purchased a residence near Mossvale Station called Hillview. It still exists today. It's been sold. But it became the status place for the governor, primarily because no politicians lived in the area. The politicians had all their houses on the Blue Mountains. So that suited the government to keep the government, uh, the governor away from the politicians. Now, there's been a lot of situations where the governors don't want to be associated with politicians. What would be a good example of that? Well, the best example is that Sydney Terminal uh, station where the governor refused to have his name on the same brass plaque as the politicians. So separate plaques were cast for the governor and for the um, politicians of the day when the station was opened in 1906. And the plaques were in different parts of the building? Correct. So the politicians lived in the Blue Mountains. How did that relate to the sort of level of service and quality of the train station? The railways operate on a principle called departmental revenge, David. And they may be directed to do something, build a station for a politician, but they have the ultimate pleasure of deciding what facilities they provide. And, of course, you can imagine they would take their revenge. The public servants would show this displeasure by providing something that was fairly basic. After all, the poly only wanted a station to get on and off. So they were void of any glamorous buildings. The policy of revenge, I love that. 
So it's not about the needs of the people? No, that's right. I don't think it's ever been about the needs of the people. The, the railways have always decided what the needs of the people are, not the people. Stuart, that's been marvellous. Thank you for this opportunity. We will keep relating stories about various stations in the future. I think you're actually writing a history of each railway station. Yes, I am. In New South Wales. Correct. All right, I look forward to the ongoing conversations about various locations around this state. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that was Stuart Sharp, railway historian extraordinaire and a person who has done intense research with an acerbic eye. This is Overdrive across Australia. Subaru XV joined the ranks of hybrid vehicles early in 2020. Really a hugely successful all-wheel drive SUV, the XV mild hybrid features a 2-litre horizontally opposed boxer engine, linked via motor assist to a high-voltage lithium-ion battery, offering fuel economy benefits particularly in congested city driving. Depending upon the driving environment, vehicle and battery condition, it can operate in fully electric mode up to 40 kilometres an hour. It also emits a pedestrian alert system when you're driving both forward and reverse to alert people in close proximity. The system operates when the vehicle speed is 24 kilometres an hour or less. The XV retains the CVT and X-Mode all-wheel drive system. It's a breeze to drive with no noticeable difference to a full petrol hybrid vehicle. Sitting midway through the model range, the mild hybrid EV is priced from just under $40,000 recommended driveway pricing. It's relatively good value. However, a full hybrid would be welcomed. You're listening to Overdrive. And now time for some unusual road and transport stories. Underline is our good friend Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. What have you got for us? Well, David, you know, every city struggles with modes of transport and the most efficient and cars versus walking and cycling versus rail and and often we cities start struggling and looking at, at sort of unusual devices like monorails. And in this case, we're talking about a zip line. You know, as a child, you may have had a stretched rope between two trees and hung on some sort of handle and slid down the zip line from one end to the other. Well, a Japanese company called Zip Infrastructure Incorporated is proposing a thing called ZipR. So it's sort of like zipper, but with an AR instead of an ER. And the idea is... It's a series of zip lines carrying small pods. This uh, Stop me, David, if you've heard this before many, many times. <laughs> you know, an elevated trackway, basically cables, and then these pods carrying up to 12 ended above it, and, uh, and, and which consists of a little cage running about five or six metres down a cable in a very noisy way at about walking speed. So, David, there's a lot of these sorts of things, you know, proposed to solve the problems of transport in cities, and they tend to think of, try to think of themselves or present themselves as something that's not normal transport in a city. But, look, it's a, it's a box with people in it moving along a guideway, and, of course, the problem with things like this, David, is, um, you know, can carry about 3,000 people an hour uh, compared with a train, which might be anywhere from 25,000 to, to sort of 60,000 people per hour. The only advantage it has potentially is a lower cost, a tenth of the cost of rail, but that's still, you know, an entire network of cables and 
structures and overhead gantries in order to make these things work. When we run out of capacity at ground level, we always seem to want to go up. You mentioned the monorail. Yeah. It's a bit like a ski lift, really, isn't it? Only it's, it is. Uh, I don't think it's just downhill, though. It's not like a flying no. fog. No. No, it's it's got motors. It's got batteries and motors. Each of the pods is individually can, uh, like uh, provided with motors, and so they drive along. Yes, they, they sort of zoom along, and, and the, the advertising videos show them sort of zipping in all sorts of different directions and, and peeling off. The biggest problem in cities, David, is, is space. And uh, in order to use cities efficiently, you need to move the greatest number of people in the smallest number of vehicles. And things like this are really not, um, not solutions. They are a, sort of a, a distraction from what we really need to do. Ryan, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Liz Amt, Stuart Sharp, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast previous programs on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.